Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. This week, we take a hard look at how consumption patterns in Asia have shifted as a result of the global pandemic. With me is Nielsen's Managing Director of Consumer Intelligence, Vaughn Ryan. I met Vaughn virtually during a recent Singapore Chinese Chamber of Commerce and Industry event where he, I, and others were asked to share our thoughts with the Singapore business community in a session entitled Gearing Up for the Next Normal. Nielsen had just surveyed consumers in the region to see how buying behavior had shifted in a time of COVID-19 and intermittent periods of lockdown. Now, in the course of our 30-minute conversation, we share these findings with you. Von Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are here in Singapore, but we are via Zoom. Uh, you are head of consumer intelligence for Nielsen, Asia Pacific. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Excited to be here. I thought today uh, we, we had an opportunity in a recent panel of Singapore Chinese Chamber of Commerce to exchange ideas and uh, serve on a panel together and talk about uh, shifting patterns in consumerism in Asia on the back of some research that you and your team had recently done. Uh, before we go into that and, and some of the things that have changed in the in the COVID and post-COVID world, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the emerging patterns you've seen in consumer behavior over the last 25 years in Asia. Yeah, I think the real key one here, and someone once told me that a uh, for the majority of consumers in Asia, their life gets better every day. That's probably not the case for the last five months. But prior to that, wealth, middle class, you know, uh, emerging opportunities, growth across predominantly nearly all sectors of the community and all sectors of the market. So for the average consumer in Asia, uh, it's, it's been a good time the last 25 years. Exports have grown. And they're starting to look at premium offerings more so than they ever have before. Education levels are really high. So in a general context, I know it's a pretty broad question, but things are good here in Asia for the most part. And I also think people here are quite resilient. And because of whether it's SARS or H1N1, the recovery too in Asia will be a lot faster than it will be in other regions that haven't had to go through some of these traumatic experiences in the past like we have here. In any intriguing nuances in terms of buying behavior or consumer tastes and preferences uh, by country, just curious, uh, it, is it any different from any other place in the world that's going through this developing market to developed market stage? Yeah, I think one of the real funny factors for me when I talk to my peers in Europe or the US, we've historically spoken about west to east a lot. But I think over the next few years, it'll be all about east to west. And the best example of that in a historical trend sense is the adoption rate of e-commerce and of online purchasing behavior. Even prior to COVID, you know, Asia was leading the way in markets like Korea and China, where e-com penetration of categories such as FMCG or the fast-moving consumer goods industry was well and truly over 30% share of the total sales. And we're seeing similar trends in terms of growth happening across most of Asia right now. Uh, so, you know, that e-com adoption is really quick. Smartphone adoption has been faster than other parts of the world. The ability to move online, you can go to a rural farm in the Mekong in Vietnam and see a guy with a smartphone listening to the football in the UK. Uh, you know, the, people are not in a closed shop in Asia. They're far more global than historically thought of. And this is one of the real assets that this region has. 
Well, what is what? What's the reason for that adoption of e-commerce here versus the U.S.? And can you just share with us some comparative statistics so people who may not be familiar with this uh, can understand really just how different it is? Yeah. So to put a little bit of perspective behind it, in Korea, we're seeing you know well over thirty-five percent of sales in FMCG happen in F- happen online relative to I think the UK, which is about the largest, and that's about ten percent prior to COVID. So it's significantly higher. So despite sophistications of markets, it doesn't naturally mean that consumers automatically go to e-commerce. There has to be a need. And the need in Asia has always been around convenience. And you know, for guys like yourself and I that have lived here for some time, if you go to places like Bangkok or Jakarta or Ho Chi Minh City, you only have to live in the traffic for 15 minutes to recognise that convenience is different than what it would be in France or the UK, Italy or the US. I know traffic exists in those markets, but nowhere near to the extremes of some of those, some of the Asian markets. Does, does quality of bandwidth matter? For instance, South Korea is one of the highest bandwidth markets in the world, I believe. Uh, it, it, does that encourage uh, the use of e-commerce, have more trust, reliability? Uh, does that lend itself to supporting e-commerce versus traditional retail? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know, infrastructure is really important. <clears throat> Excuse me, but the reality of it all is that a lot of the infrastructure, particularly in Southeast Asia, is relatively new as well. So governments have invested in infrastructure, whether it's been uh, foreign direct investment that's helped support that infrastructure. For the most part, we don't really have any challenges where that's concerned. Are the consumer trends in this part of the world about rising middle class? I mean, really just those primary uh goods uh, from TVs to refrigerators to air conditioners, or, and I know it'll differ market to market, obviously, but among, uh, let's say, ASEAN uh, countries, uh, those that are rising into from developing to develop status, uh, or is it more luxury goods or recreational? Um, in other words, is there a discernible and clear shift in purchasing patterns in the last five to 10 years? 10 years ago, I would have said it's a bit of an all in sundry approach where, yeah, it certainly is all about you know, that that growth occurring across those segments. But as we start to see a diversity in society where there's a bit more differences between the wealthier and the poor, um, there's two sectors going on there. The wealthier are certainly looking at premium and brands have huge recognition in this part of the world. I still laugh when I go to Bangkok. It's quite a lot where you see the woman carrying the handbag with the name of the brand on the outside so everyone knows what that brand of the handbag is. Or, you know, brands are incredibly important. You can see that in Singapore with the level of car purchasing and the extreme investment in cars uh, relative to salaries in this part of the world. Brands are really, really important. But I do think if you go into the rural parts of some of these markets, uh, there's still a large level of poverty. That being said, those people aspire and they watch TV and because of communications being relatively cheap, they see what's going on in urban centres and they want that. I also think it's really, you know, for the listeners to the podcast, I think it, you have to be really careful about Asia in general and you have to be careful even within countries. There's such diversity within each of the markets. Having lived in Vietnam for about six years, the behaviours of consumers in the north versus the central and the south are completely different. The collective approach in the north of Vietnam versus the individualistic approach for people in the south. And you see similar trends in urban Thailand and Bangkok versus the rural parts. And one of the important elements to this is the largest city by percentage of population of a country 
in Southeast Asia and specifically is Kuala Lumpur that is still under 20% uh, in terms of the population of the total country. So outside of the capital cities, there's still massive opportunities and still massive levels of growth. And that's why a lot of companies entered this region 10, 15, 20 years ago for that growth. So what we've seen is a real rapid growth rate in urban centres, but second tier cities and rural still has an enormous level of growth to come. Interesting. Is there a propensity to buy uh, from global brands versus local brands, uh, let's say in the category of apparel? Uh, in other words, do you see uh, people uh, a deference to, to buying um, known local brands versus multinationals? Again, this, is a, this shows the shift 10 years ago, definitely, even five years ago, definitely, it was about global brands. Today, it's starting to move to more local and you know a lot of these countries have taken great pride in buying local and even regional as well there's a bit of approach where that's starting to grow one of the interesting aspects for me is some of the the youth cultural elements such as k-pop and j-pop you see people in thailand and philippines and vietnam watching in indonesia watching k-pop shows and movies and you know listening to the music it's part of the trend of the region and it's a real adaption that say 15 years ago there was probably more american shows being watched or american music so intra regional buying versus global or trans pacific buying yeah that was the approach pre covid but i think increasingly as we get into post covid we'll start to see more localization well, let's talk about that. Um, your research has come out uh, very recently, so you had a chance to uh, get a snapshot view on how some of those trends have changed under an economic and healthcare crisis. What did you see, and could you call out a few interesting areas for us? I think the one big moment for me was all the trends that we expected to happen in three to five years have happened in three to five months. So none of the things that are happening today are a shock in terms of them happening, but it's the speed with which they've happened. So parts like omni shopping, where people were shopping both offline and online, or the communications that we're using things like Zoom and, and other forms of communication, these were always trends that were going to occur, or even the offline to online ordering systems, groups such as Grabs and Ubers and Food Pandas, they were already starting to get penetration in the market. But what COVID has done is expedited the process at a rapid rate. And, and that's been one of the biggest findings for us that for many manufacturers and retailers and suppliers, they've had to change their strategy, not dramatically, but bring their strategies forward at a dramatic rate instead. Which markets have been the biggest surprise to you in terms of that shift from offline to online? And uh, I guess that both in terms of demand, but also in terms of ability to, to deliver on that uh, I, I, versus, you know, Singapore being a more mature market versus, let's say, in Indonesia being less mature. Yeah, probably the one that shocked me the most was Malaysia. Malaysian consumers at the moment, statistically, I think it's about 25% of Malaysian consumers said that they bought online for the first time. And about 18% of that 25% said they'd continue, so sorry, 18% of all of those consumers of the 100% said they'd continue to buy online. So they enjoyed the experience. So we expect to continue purchasing behavior down that, that rate. The other area that was really interesting with this was the age. So when you segment by age, it was the older citizens in the community, community 
that have really adopted online and have adopted it at a rapid rate, probably because they're the most vulnerable to the virus, but also they've enjoyed the experience. So it's something that I expect will continue. So in other words, those that felt they were elder or older, not elder, but older, might have felt more compromised by going out into uh, in, into the community and therefore ch- were choosing to stay in and in choosing to stay in had no option but to go online if they wanted to continue to purchase, whether it be food or, or products. Is that right? Correct. So baby boomers, for example, you know, if you speak to some of the major online retailers, they're their fastest growing segment by a long way. And what about the, in terms of some of the shifts that have occurred um, in just just the way that pe- of what people are buying now versus what they were buying pre-COVID? Is it what you might expect? I mean, a focus more on health and, and well-being uh, versus luxury goods? Uh, or, or were there any surprises in there, things that, that you hadn't expected that you saw from the research? Yeah, definitely it was the health element, and you're spot on there. Consumers initially and continue, have continued to do so have tried to look at products that can benefit them in the health and safety aspect. So unsurprisingly, hand sanitizers, cleanliness around the house is a real priority. One of the segments that I don't think it surprises me that, but has continued to grow and grow on at a rapid rate has been the premium segment depending upon the country and the area. So where people have been, I guess, wealthier populations exist or in the higher socioeconomic uh, groups, those people continue to buy premium propositions but at a more rapid rate. And that's probably because they're at home far more often. So they're not going out to restaurants, cafes and bars because they cannot. So when they're at home, they decide to, I guess, treat themselves with more premium. And that's become a, a real an interesting trend. And when you say premium, Vaughn, are you referring to higher priced items or simply uh, more uh, uh, high value or high branded? What do you mean by that? Well, it's a bit of both. So, you know, it, it's consumers are smart. They always want things that have value, but they'll treat themselves. So it might be a premium ice cream or it might be a nicer bottle of wine or a more expensive piece of cut of meat than they would have bought in the past. Uh, because they're stuck at home and they figure instead of the Friday night going out for dinner and drinks, they'll have dinner and drinks at home, but it'll be of a premium fashion. I I think if I'm not mistaken, in in North America and Europe, consumption of alcohol has risen during periods of shutdown. Yet in Asia, is that the case as well? Or is there some reference to the idea that beer beer purchase is down uh, at a surprising level? Yeah, look, alcohol sales across the region, when I last had a look at them, are around down about 20 to 25%. And that's primarily driven by the out-of-home consumption. That being said, in-home consumption has grown significantly, which is not surprising. But I guess one of the funny factors is when we get home, we don't, we're not always honest with how many drinks we've had. So maybe instead of having five or six, you're having one or two at home. Hmm. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting to, to to just notice there's in some ways there's less you can spend on because people aren't traveling, uh, they're not uh, out and about, they're not dining as much as they were before. Um, so expendable income, assuming you've held on to your job and or haven't uh, been been uh, subjected to a, a major pay cut, uh, spending patterns appear to be holding relatively steady. Did that catch you by surprise? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, for me, I expected some of these trends to continue, but I see this as the immediate future as COVID keeps prolonging and some of the reality checks come into play, you know, 
when bonus payouts have become hygiene factors for many of us over the last decade in Asia and they don't appear, I do think consumers are going to tighten their purse strings. Plus, add to factors that in many families there's, uh, where there's couples, both couples work, so both individuals work, I should say. So given that's the case and some of those couples, one or both have lost their jobs, uh, I do think there'll be an impact in the market sooner rather than later. Uh, to what extent is always the one where we're trying to predict and forecast. I think it's going to be quite severe, to be honest, Steve. That worries me a little. But it's not showing up now, is that correct? Yeah, because Nielsen traditionally measures, obviously, food and beverage consumption. So, you know, you would expect that to be growing. So supermarkets, hypermarkets, they've had a great start to the year because more consumers are eating at home and you would expect that to happen, right? Right. To, to what degree do you think the perpetuated buying habits in Asia have to do with the higher relative savings rates? So in other words, uh, a higher percentage of people's income is saved in most Asian markets compared to North America or United States. I'm just wondering whether or not if you've got a little bit of nest egg tucked away, that rainy day you know, account, uh, are people deploying it and using it and purchasing goods and services now because they can? Uh, in other words, it's created a buffer. Do you see anything or do you have any suspicion that maybe that, that's lending itself to helping retail sales stay as strong as they are right now? I think this is because of the polarization in the economies. There's two sets. The wealthy, definitely, and you're spot on, right? Particularly in Asia where people do keep, better use of words or a phrase, you know, cash under the bed, under the mattress. But you've got economies that are, and people in the economy that are living day to day still in Asia. And, you know, you look at a lot of the traditional trade that still exists, the hawker centres that exist across Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines in particular, um, the sari sari stores where people are living day by day to get cash to be able to afford food that evening. I do think that group is suffering dramatically right now and severely. And you can see how some of the governments are trying to rejuvenate some of their economies faster and take higher risks where health and safety are concerned. But back to the original question, definitely for wealthier Asians and, you know, those, that group, they've definitely, they're definitely prepared and ready for this. And as a result, they're probably going to recover a lot faster, which I mentioned at the beginning. Vaughn, when all of this settles, assuming it settles, um, in coming months, maybe in, within the next year, uh, would you anticipate people returning to the way that they were purchasing before? In other words, back to an offline environment and you'd see a settling or a, a reversal on online purchasing? No, I don't. I'm not, definitely not to the way it was, say, back in January or February. I, I think that the world has taken a significant shift and it's not going to go back to the way it was for some time, if ever. You know, we know from a working situation that we're all going to work from home a lot more often than we did in the past, and companies are going to encourage that behaviour. And a lot of companies around the globe have already made decisions where office space is concerned. So it's not going to be as comfortable to go into the office or it's not going to be expected to go into the office. There'll still be expectations around that, but not to the same level as it was before. So just think about this in terms of a little side story. You're the guy that owns the sandwich shop or you own the noodle shop below a massive office that holds 10,000 people and 35% of those people don't come in every day to the office. So one in three of them is working from home every day. That's a significant reduction in the amount of noodles you're going to sell every day. 
put that into a 7-Eleven store, that's a, a significant amount of uh, ad hoc convenience purchase that reduce. Or if it's a Starbucks, that's a lot less coffee you're going to sell. That, that's going to have a dramatic impact in terms of consumption behaviours across the economy. And I think that will continue at least into 21 and 22. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about ethical buying. Uh, in North America and Europe, we're seeing a rising trend in Gen X and Gen Z buying, uh, making purchasing decisions based on a company's sustainability or so-called environment, social, and governance practices. Are you seeing similar trends in Asia? And if so, where? We're certainly seeing purchase intent to happen, but consumers won't compromise quality or value for that. And that's the interesting aspect here, particularly as much as consumers in Gen Y are saying that we want to buy stuff that's good for the environment, we don't see those behaviours flowing over at a dramatic rate like we do in, in Western markets. So uh, I think that that's a trend that will definitely continue to grow. I'd love to see it faster at a personal level, but I, I don't see, that, I don't see this, this being the priority of consumers today. And a little fear of mine is because of COVID, we're going to see increased packaging around products that probably don't require packaging at the same level as they did pre-COVID. You know, consumers are really health conscious, but are they going to follow that up with environmentally conscious decisions as well? I hope so, but I don't see that trend growing at any rapid rate based on what was happening prior to COVID. And, and some of those packaging decisions simply might be just requirements uh, in order to transit or transfer food, let's say the home delivery services or uh, the Ubers, the Grabs, uh, the, the, the uh, Gojeks of the world who are, uh, are, are needing to make sure that, that, that food uh, stays fresh and, and, and available uh, all the way to its final destination. But then you're right, there, there, also, there were trends or movements towards uh, FMCG and food and beverage companies thinking about their packaging and preparing to reduce the amount of plastics or the single use. Uh, and, and now perhaps some of those decisions will be put on hold because, as you pointed out, consumers remain discerning and cost conscious. What do you think of that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And this is a bit of a worry as well. And, and one of the areas that we've been encouraging our customers and our clients to think is don't forget innovation at this point in time. This is the time to be innovative. This is the time to be creative because consumers are looking for differences. They're looking for choice. They're looking for new things that can adapt to their new situations they're being put in. Packaging is one component of that, but packaging can be both environmentally friendly and safe at the same time. But but as you said before, the level of awareness among consumers in Asia, at least at this stage, isn't at that same level. I mean, for instance, you know, Ben & Jerry's, which is owned by Unilever, uh, my understanding is as many people buy Ben & Jerry's for the taste as for what the company represents. We don't have, to your uh, knowledge, an Asian equivalent of that at this point in time, do we? There's pockets of excellence around Asia, so I don't want to say there's none. There are some companies doing some extraordinary things. And they'll continue to do so. And I've seen some of the manufacturing plants and the recycling that's going on for various companies throughout Asia, some of the best in class. But as a, a key selling point, I don't see that as winning a lot of consumers over in a big way like we've seen in some of the Western markets to date. That doesn't mean that trend won't be adopted too. And maybe one of the outcomes of this will be more social awareness and people will start to look after the environmental aspects as well as health and safety. What, what about... Um a 
place of origin, for instance, with foods. Uh, in this time of COVID, when people are wondering, or, or even when they, uh, a manufactured product, are they making decisions about where they purchase a product from based on concerns about the origins of that, of that food product or manufactured product? Super important, Steve. If I'm a manufacturer right now and I'm locally made, let's position someone that's a, a food product or a fruit or veg that's being sold in KL and I'm made in Malaysia or grown in Malaysia, I'm screaming that message to my consumers because consumers want to know where it's been. The logistical management of a product has never been scrutinised more than now. You know, which countries has it come from? Where has it been? Where is it stored? What conditions is it stored in? How many contacts with humans has it had before it gets onto the shelf? These are all critical aspects that consumers want to understand and must know to buy your brands. For retailers, they have to scream this story. They have to scream sanitization. They have to scream contactless that we have that availability in our stores because, uh, let's face it, a lot of the contraction of the virus has happened in this situation where consumers have been forced into queues or lines or into shopping centres where there's been too many people. Uh, we don't want to be put in that position. We don't want to compromise our health or safety. You'd say when they're screaming this, is it because they know that that's something consumers are demanding and requiring or because they see it as a marketing opportunity to raise awareness and purchasing of local versus international goods? Well, I think it's become a hygiene factor in one part that you need to make sure that you're telling consumers where a brand has come from and the logistics side of things. But also from a consumer element, consumers want to support local. They want to, you know, in Singapore, for example, the government's been very big on making sure Singaporeans have jobs and, and screaming this message. It's been similar in other markets for some time. So in Thailand, for example, if I can buy Thai fruits and vegetables and it will help a Thai person actually keep their job and keep income in Thailand, there's this real resurgence in that from a consumer angle. So if you're a, a retailer or a manufacturer and you can adapt to that, you should tell consumers about that because that's certainly a competitive advantage. So, so Vaughn, I hear you saying that this COVID episode could give a unintended, if you will, boost to local brands and local sourced products over internationally sourced products. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. And in fact, where consumers were looking at, say, US made or European made, particularly in the back in April, May, when COVID was at some of its highest peaks, I know it's continuing to grow in some of those markets. But uh, consumers were really hesitant to buy any brands from those countries. They were wondering how it had actually got there, who'd made the product. And we know that they're safe when they're on the shelf. It doesn't mean that consumers are not reluctant. But on top of that, there's this real look after your, look after your own community first. Even within countries, within communities, within local suburbs, we're seeing this micro element where people are trying to help the guy that runs the corner store more so than before. Can we help that person that's at the restaurant that I used to go to to keep them going? Because I think we have a behavior or a belief that when this is done, whenever that is, we want that store to continue to exist. One, because it helps me be more convenient as well, right? When I want to go and get that thing in a hurry, I can go there. I don't have to travel too far. So, so even down to the community level, supporting your community and your local vendors and your neighborhood providers is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is going to grow even more as some of the uh, fiscal challenges grow as well. I think we're going to see consumers looking more and more micro-local. At, at a broader basis, is there an element of nationalism here? If I'm Chinese, buy China. If I'm Singaporean, 
by Singapore. Is is and are the governments exploiting that opportunity to to build support for their own, uh, you know, in-country vendors, manufacturers, and providers? I don't have specifics post-COVID or during COVID to suggest that, but there's no doubt that the trends are heading that way. And you'd have to suspect some of that is because of those behaviours. And you know that governments for some time have been encouraging buying local. Um, within ACN specifically, there has been a buy ACN products uh, approach for a while now as well. And I think that will be encouraged into the future and will be smart for the, uh, for the group of ACN nations to do that. You know, they've got a lot more supplier products in other areas of the world. Vaughn, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, terrific insights. Uh, I know, as you rightly point out, Asia is a very diverse market. Uh, it's very hard to speak about it as one homogenous unit, but nevertheless, looking for trends or patterns is what we like to do on the podcast. And you've helped us do this uh, around the consumer space. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, thanks, Steve. Anytime. That was my conversation with Vaughn Ryan, Managing Director of Consumer Intelligence at Nielsen, a leading global market research firm. I don't know about you, but I was encouraged by Vaughn's findings. And while it's still early days and there is, no doubt, more economic and social suffering to come, Asian consumers are proving resilient. If it's true that consumerism is alive and well in this part of the world, it's largely a reflection of the haves versus the have-nots. In Asia's least developed markets, where the average citizen lives hand to mouth and savings rates are virtually non-existent, it's not what you can buy, but how to survive that occupies the minds of many. The COVID crisis has put millions of jobs in jeopardy all across the region, and the longer countries restrict cross-border travel and trade in some goods and services, the longer the suffering will persist. For those fortunate enough to have held on to their jobs, it seems that income once spent on travel, outings, and restaurants is now being spent on health and well-being, home entertainment and improvement, and food. It appears to be a function of disposable income. With the exception of the poorest segment of the Asian population, most middle and upper middle class families have built up healthy household savings rates. It's the proverbial rainy day, and money that was tucked away for just such an occasion is now proving central in helping economies in the region endure the current crisis. Patterns in purchasing behavior have changed too. As Vaughn points out, in markets where e-commerce lagged, COVID has given online purchasing a big nudge. For most users, once they cross that line and use a smartphone or laptop to make a purchase, they rarely go back. He believes that even among an older set of more conventional shoppers, e-commerce has taken on a new meaning. Even after the crisis subsides, he doesn't expect e-commerce trends to reverse. Customer loyalties are readjusting as well. Those who may have once preferred international brands discovered that during the crisis, some of those products were no longer available in local stores. That caused a shift to local producers, who weren't as affected by supply chain disruptions. In the meantime, governments are both subtly and not so subtly encouraging citizens to buy local and support the home economy. While small businesses all around the region have suffered the most, this particular situation has cleared the way for new cottage industries and local providers of otherwise internationally sourced products. It's odd and strangely reassuring to see such a positive outlook for consumption in the region, at least from a pure economic standpoint. 
But at the same time, and maybe this is just a personal hope, I've wondered if this crisis would offer a moment of consumer reflection. As in, do I really need that battery-operated back scratcher or that 23rd pair of Ferragamo dress shoes? We have that other problem looming, and it goes by the name of environmental sustainability. Human consumption on all fronts has severely taxed our planet. A global reduction in consumer demand might help mend the damage done. But here's the rub. Our global economy has been built on the back of household consumption. Demand creates jobs, jobs produce income, and income is used to make those purchases that in theory keep us happy and secure. Leading up to the crisis, there was hope that conscientious companies would create more sustainable products and that consumers would pay a little more if it meant higher manufacturing standards and sustainable practices. COVID is testing that possibility. Once again, price is king. That may be good for the marketplace, but where does this leave the planet and the entire rundown of sustainability goals? That, I suspect, is a topic for a future episode. What's your outlook for Asia's economies, and will consumerism endure as the crisis drags on? Let us know what you think. Visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com, or leave a message on our LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram sites. If you're not already a loyal Inside Asia listener, please subscribe today. Search for Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. It's entirely free and there are over 140 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia, on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.